Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we are attorneys for NFP Benefits Compliance. And we are here today to uh, bring to you the latest information about health reform and other regulatory items. Today, we are going to examine a recent D.C. A district court opinion that relates to wellness programs and the EEOC. So Chase, let's start out just right there. What is the EEOC and what regulations are we talking about? Good spot to jump in. The EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and that is a federal agency that administers and enforces several different laws relating to workplace discrimination, including the Civil Rights Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, or the ADEA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA. The only ones you have to remember there are the ADA and GINA. Those are the ones that are at play here in this case. And to give a quick background on those two laws, they both generally prohibit employers from discriminating against employees on the basis of a disability, in the case of the ADA, and on the basis of genetic information, in the case of GINA, Genetic information um, in this context relates to family medical history information. So the EEOC a few years ago published regulations on how these two laws, the ADA and GINA, apply in the context of employer wellness programs and specifically rewards relating to employee participation in those programs. So um, as a quick background, a little bit more on the ADA to help explain what the case is about In addition to that general prohibition on discriminating against those with a physical or mental disability, the ADA also requires that any medical exam or inquiry be either related to a job function or be voluntary. So the former there, um, an example of that, something that's related to a job function, would be something like a drug test for an employee who is operating heavy machinery. So the employer has an interest in safety for both the employee and those around him to make sure he's okay to, or he or she is okay to operate the machinery. So they're allowed to uh, administer a drug test, or in other words, make an inquiry about someone's medical well-being, because that's directly related to the job the employee is performing. So that's why an employer can ask an employee to take drug tests or ask other questions of an employee in some instances. It's because it's directly related to the job that the employee is performing. The idea of it being an inquiry being voluntary is really where the wellness programs come into play. Most wellness programs don't relate to a job function. It's just the employer wanting to encourage better health and better habits. Okay, so I like to, when I think about laws, I like to try to figure out the logic behind them. And it's certainly logical to allow uh, employers to gather that type of information when it relates to the job function and the safety, of course, of the employees. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about gathering that in a voluntary perspective and any parameters that we're going to have around that, let's dig into that, the idea of voluntary a bit more. Yeah, so this is really the crux of the issues when it comes to wellness and the ADA. Uh, The ADA says in order to be voluntary, the reward for participating in the wellness program can't be so high as to make it seem to the employee that they have to participate. So the most obvious example would be an employer that said to you, Suzanne, hey, you have to take part in this health risk assessment and you have to achieve a certain status such as a certain blood cholesterol level or else we won't allow you to even enroll in the group health plan. So it's a, it's a protection against discrimination of a sorts. 
Right. If you're pending eligibility based on a health status, that's prohibited under the non-discrimination rules. So um, that would make the assessment involuntary under the ADA for you, since you really need the group health plan, and since foregoing the assessment um, would mean you would have no right to enroll in that plan. So that's an example of an involuntary medical inquiry. The ADA would prohibit that. So the question becomes, and this is what we're seeing in these cases on the ADA and wellness programs, how low do I have to go as an employer in order to have the EEOC say that the inquiry is voluntary? And what do, what do you mean by how low? Right. So I, I can't condition plan eligibility on participation. We just talked about that. But can I offer a 50% discount to employees that participate? Can I offer a 75% discount? At what point does the threshold, if I'm, making, if I'm turning that into a surcharge, which is what a lot of these wellness programs do, at what point is, it too, is the surcharge too high so that it becomes involuntary? So one person's reward is another person's surcharge in that instance. And you'll hear that re reference in the wellness program world of rewards versus surcharges. But the EEOC basically put out their interpretation in these regulations a few years ago, and they said the threshold is actually 30%. So if the value of the reward for participating in a, in a, in a wellness program exceeds 30% of the cost of single-only coverage, then the reward is too high. It becomes involuntary and therefore would be prohibited under the ADA. Yeah, so that's that's helpful um, clarification because if we look at HIPAA, that, that is also in play. And HIPAA allows 30% for most wellness programs, but it does go up to 50% for tobacco-related inquiries. That's exactly right. And it's an important clarification here. The case we're talking about that recently came out uh, from the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. Uh, relates to the ADA and GINA and does not impact HIPAA. So HIPAA comes into play on wellness programs as well, though, and like you said, allows 30% and up to 50% if it's tobacco-related. Um, there is a little bit of a distinction there. Those thresholds apply only if the wellness program is considered health contingent under HIPAA, and that means that the employee has to meet a certain standard, like a blood cholesterol level or a certain BMI or something similar to that. So not just gathering information, but having to actually um, meet a certain health condition. That's right. So the other type of program under HIPAA is called participatory, meaning the employee just has to complete a form um, or certify their smoking status, whatever it is. It's just like you said, information gathering. There's no standard that the employee has to meet in order to receive the reward. So um, what's important here, though, is that the ADA's 30% threshold applies even to participatory pr programs. So it's a bit more stringent than HIPAA. The ADA says that any time there's a medical inquiry, then the 30% limit becomes applicable. But it is important to distinguish HIPAA here. HIPAA's rules are not impacted by this court case that we're going to talk about, whereas the ADA is. And then the ADA comes into play in a broader context of wellness programs because it pulls in these participation-only programs or these information-gathering programs. Got it. As a quick note, we mentioned GINA up front as well. The rules are very similar under GINA but relate to an inquiry about an employee's genetic information, which is basically where an employer asks about family medical histories. 
It's the same ideas under Gina. The request has to be voluntary, and that generally means 30% threshold, same as the ADA. There's some technical differences in how you calculate that under Gina, but for our purposes today, we can say that the Gina rules are basically the same as the ADA rules. Okay, so let's go back to that district court case. Give us some background on that. Yeah, so the DC case was filed by the AARP, and they basically challenged the 30% reward incentive threshold under the EEOC's rules on the ADA and GINA and wellness programs. In other words, they were saying it's too great of a cost to be considered voluntary, and therefore the rules should be invalidated. So it was basically a, a direct challenge to the EEOC's rules saying they'd gone a little bit too far. So walk us through that argument. And ex- what did the court say about it? Yeah, so the D.C. District Court basically agreed with the AARP and said this is, uh, this is too high and the threshold there at 30% is too much. Um, they first ordered the EEOC to revisit the regulations. This was back in um, fall of 2017. Uh, they, the court said, hey, you need to go back and uh, relook at your regulations, and they wanted a um, timeline for that. So the EEOC responded saying that they would issue new proposed regulations in late 2018, that they would finalize them in 2019 and make them effective in 2021. So the EEOC really had an extended timeline there for themselves to put out these new regulations. Which is frustrating for employers right. to not have clarity. So that's, you know, this, this is where I think that we get frustrated with the government and not moving along faster because employers really need clarity in this area. That's exactly right. And I think that's kind of where the court was going with this. But the EEOC, they were basically saying, well, for now, the rules should be fine and we'll kind of take our own sweet time to fix them uh, by 2021, basically taking three more years of sort of contemplating, proposing and finalizing um, but the court didn't seem to like that, as, as you pointed out. So the court, in, at the very end of last year, uh, just a month ago, the court vacated the EEOC regulations beginning in January of 2019. So in other words, these regulations that the EEOC has now are, are okay for one more year. And beyond that, the court will not recognize them. They're basically invalidated. Um, so basically sending a message to the EEOC saying, speed up your time frame for rulemaking. And um, that's uh, the message they're trying to send is, let's get some clarity out here for employers. Let's, uh, let's try and put out a nice roadmap where we can move forward on that. This is so interesting because it really does bring a lot of questions into play. Of course, we like hearing that the court's taking a hard stance on it and, and trying to get the regulatory body to move along. But on the other hand, we really don't want courts overstepping their boundaries and, and interfering with enactment of regulations. That's not the court's role. Right. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's a very interesting legal question, like you're saying, for legal nerds like us. Uh, But what are the roles of the courts versus the regulatory agencies? And it really boils down to a constitutional law question and the division of powers. And the answer is really no here. The courts can't generally dictate when an agency has to propose rules. What a court can do, though, Suzanne, is invalidate regulations. They can say these regulations have gone too far or they're an incorrect interpretation of the statute. And that's really what the court is here is doing. They're just invalidating these rules 
and saying that the invalidation will take place or take effect one year from now. They do this by what they say, staying their decision. That's really just a, a legal court term for delaying their decision until January 1st of 2019. So that has the same effect in essence. It, it's then up to the EEOC to figure out their time frame. And there's an interesting article that we read uh, yesterday talking about the back and forth between the EEOC and the court and the EEOC being a little bit saucy about that saying, hey, court, you can't really tell us what our time frame should be and we'll do it kind of on our own terms. Um, but, but beyond 2019, what the court is saying, we're not going to enforce these rules. And so you, in, in essence, that shortens the time frame that the EEOC needs to get out their regulations so that they don't bump up against that time frame from the court. Well, that, you know, that is an interesting legal question because the regulatory bodies really can only act within the confines of the authority given to them by the statutes. And so they really, they really do have limited authority. And so in this case, it was right of the court to step in and said, you've gone beyond your authority given to you by statute. Um, so, but I guess they went a little bit too far in trying to prescribe um, how they actually went through their own rulemaking process. So what does this decision mean for employers? Yeah, so looking forward for employers, I think this will still have a little bit of confusion out there. And the court decision um, hopefully will lead to a little bit more uniformity between regulations. Um, we see a little bit of a disparity between what we talked about with HIPAA before and the ADA and GINA uh, under the EEOC's rules. Um, so hopefully this will give the EEOC some time to uh, go back and, and fix regulations and hopefully come out with something that's a little bit more consistent. In the meantime, what it definitely means is that for 2018, employers need to worry about the ADA rules and the GINA rules when it comes to wellness programs. In other words, they need to consider that 30% limit even for participatory type wellness programs. That's in effect for this year. It will be enforced for this year. And so um, that's something they need to consider. For 2019 and beyond, uh, we're not quite sure what to expect. Uh, I'm expecting the EEOC to come out with something sooner rather than later. I think they probably got the message that the time frame needed to be shortened. Uh, but we'll see. We'll just have to wait and see what, act what they actually do. So in the meantime, a little bit of unclarity there for employers. Um, they should always be working with outside counsel on these wellness programs anyway. Um, because of the complexity of the laws, because of the unclarity in the uh, differences between how the laws apply, and when we're talking about the ADA and GINA, those are generally employment laws that may have an impact that go beyond wellness programs. When you're talking about protections for those with disabilities and employers having to make reasonable accommodations, that's an employment law issue. It goes beyond what benefits deals with. So for all those reasons, work with outside counsel on wellness programs and stay tuned. We'll just have to kind of see how this saga plays out between the EEOC and, and their regulations. Interesting saga in uh, D.C., I guess you can say. Um, so very interesting. Thank you for bringing this to us today, Chase. And what, what we like to say in Benefits Compliance World is that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.